Most of you are probably familiar with the book of Esther, right? I mean, it's one of the great books in the Scripture, and um, because of the story it tells. Uh, and so what I want to do is what uh, I've done over the years when we begin to tell you about it. And by the way, I have, I have book introductions for you. I've put, prepared this for you, and I'll give this to you uh, before we, we leave here and, uh, so that you can have a copy of that. Uh, what I'm trying to do and, and have been for a number of years now is take us through the entire Bible. And this is where we are in the Old Testament. We've gone through every book until uh, up to Esther in the Old Testament. And we've gone through every book in the New Testament uh, up through Titus. And um, by the way, we have these outlines for every one of those books. And you can get those if you want. Uh, you can call my secretary and she'll make them available to you. There's no charge for them if you want them. A lot of you still have them. You have them in notebooks. And, um, and if I ever get through all of this, <laughs> you'll have a Bible handbook. And that's my goal is to help you have a handbook. So you, if you keep these and have them, you'll have a quick reference. Say, so what is that book about? What does it talk about? It just helps us, I believe, to digest the content of a book when we have uh, an overview of the book. So that's what I want to do with you tonight. So it is the book of Esther that we're going to be looking at in the weeks ahead. I'm not going to take you through every single verse in the book of Esther, but we will pull out some significant passages and we will look at uh, those significant passages uh, so that you'll have a good, uh, at least workable knowledge of that book by the time we're finished. Uh, so, let's introduce the book. The book of Esther is one of two books named uh, for a woman. The other is Ruth, Esther and Ruth. Uh, so that's a little trivia for you. Uh, Esther is a book filled with conspiracy, political intrigue, anti-Semitism. That's one of the huge uh, parts of this book. And personal suspense. Uh, it's really the kind of book that if you had no uh, reference point in the Scripture, it would just be a good, it'd make a good movie. This would make a good movie. It has all the bad stuff in a culture, you know, going on there. Uh, the book uh, has been criticized and debated as whether or not it's valid. And the debate has centered around the fact that this is the only Old Testament book that we have that does not have any supporting documents from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, uh, a lot of there have been a lot of scholars who said for that reason it should not be uh, in the canon, what we call the canon of Scripture, but it is, and I'm glad it is because I think I think it it should be here that it is indeed. Scripture, and there's uh, people with a, a far more intellect than I who have weighed these things out and and understand that it does indeed fit. But there are those who question whether or not it should be in here. But we don't. I don't. And uh, um, then you notice next, Esther is the only Old Testament book where the name of God is never mentioned. Do you know that? The name of God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. And there are some who have argued because the name of God is not in there. This, how can this be a book about God or the work of God? But it's obvious from 
the practice of fasting by Mordecai and Esther and the Jews that there was a clear dependence on God and their need for His divine intervention. I'll tell you, also, Esther, somewhere early in her life, was orphaned. She was orphaned. We don't know what happened. We know it, it speaks of her parents, but we don't know what happened. Somewhere early in her life, she was orphaned, and then she was, I guess you would say, probably adopted by her who? Her uncle, though some say he was her cousin. Did y'all know that? But I, I, I believe he was Uncle Mordecai. And uh, so he was, uh, she was raised by her uncle Mordecai. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. That, that's her Hebrew name, and it means myrtle. Anybody have any myrtles in your family? Spud, you have a myrtle in your family? Who was it? Myrtle Thomas. Okay. Uh, anybody else have a myrtle? Some myrtles? Who was it to you? Great, great aunt. Okay. Who else back there? I saw another hand. Gordine? Myrtle. Okay. You had a great aunt named Myrtle. Well, uh, I, I don't know if they're alive. If you got any living Myrtles? Any living Myrtles y'all know of? Maybe you work with a living Myrtle? <laughs> uh, you, you do? Okay. Frank, you, uh, a living Myrtle. Yeah, call her, walk up to her. Who? Your boss. Well, maybe you ought to be careful then what I'm about to tell you to do. <laughs> I was just going to say, next time you see her, say, hey, Hadassah. Because you would be calling her Myrtle if you use that name. That's the, that's the Hebrew name. Now, we don't call Esther Hadassah. You have any idea why? Stop reading my sheet. You know why? Because, most likely, Mordecai gave her... The name Esther, which was Persian, to hide her identity as a Jew. And there are some who say she, her name wasn't changed until after she was selected to be the queen. But uh, because of the animosities that had already existed among the, uh, the, the, the Persians and the Jews, uh, most likely... Uh, she, her name was changed by Mordecai before she became a part of the harem that would be that the king would choose his new queen from. So I don't know if that changes your life, but now you know. That's the rest of the story. Okay. Now the author. You know, we don't know who the author is of Esther. It wasn't Esther. Sometimes, you know, when we look at some books, the name of the book, like Matthew or Mark or, or John, we... Uh, we can associate sometimes the author with the name of the book. You can't do that here. Um, we don't know who the author was. Uh, the, the author is anonymous. Most likely a Persian Jew, uh, or perhaps even Mordecai himself. And here's what we... Go over to chapter 9 for a second. I'm sure. Why might it be Mordecai? Well, look over at chapter 9. And verse 20, it says, And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were 
in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far. So um, it could be that Mordecai was actually the author of the book. However, that's not likely. I'm going to tell you why. He wrote about whatever happened at the time and sent it through the province to say, here's what's happened. He was probably a source because the book was the book, not the writings of Mordecai. The book wasn't written until decades later. And it, Mordecai was most assuredly dead. But his writings were or did provide a source of information to this Jewish author, uh, whoever the author was. Um, and you see there, I say it's possible that Mordecai uh, was already uh, dead by the time the book was written and obviously could not have been the author. What about the date? Well, the events uh, of the book occur during the reign of Xerxes. Now, let me just tell you that Xerxes and Ahasuerus are the same person. Okay? Uh, so, if, it, 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 as we go through this uh, overview in the weeks to come, uh, you can use those names interchangeably. Xerxes or Ahasuerus. It starts off in the translation I'm using as Ahasuerus. And so what's the difference? Well, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name. But Ahasuerus wasn't a Hebrew. He was a Persian. And he had a Persian name, Xerxes, which actually is a Greek derivative. So I know that just changes your life to know that. But, um, but at any rate, um, um, just so you'll know when you see that, that name, and, and the events that occur in this book um, speak of Ahasuerus or Xerxes and his administration in past tense. In fact, look at verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. And then if you go to chapter 10, go over to chapter 10. Verses 2 and 3, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him. Are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? Now you say, what in the world does that have to do with the date? Well, it has to do with the date in, in the sense that Ahasuerus is referred to in past tense, okay, uh, meaning that the book was, he was, he too uh, was gone uh, by the time the book was read, which would mean that the book was likely written decades later, but no later than 400 B.C. Uh, so uh, that, that's some dating uh, matters uh, for you. Uh, next. Uh, there are some themes, there are some consistent themes, and we'll talk about these themes uh, throughout our overview of the book. Uh, for example, one of the themes is God's love for His people wherever they are uh, because they are still in Babylon or they're in Iran or Persia. Um, and, and God was still concerned with them and God was still working on their behalf. 
we'll talk about God's providence. This is a book about God's providence. And God's providence relates to His, his plans and His work. And you, we will see His providence uh, expressed through the way He intervenes um, to, in, in, to protect His people. If God doesn't intervene, um, once again, there's a massive assault on the Jewish nation and it likely disappears, but God preserved. And He did that through His providence. They didn't know everything that God was going to do because we know that great line. Remember Esther later says, if I perish, I perish. God may not handle this kind of thing. But we see God's providence uh, talked about. Uh, we are uh, created for a purpose. We see that there uh, in this book, the, the idea of purpose, and that each of us, there's practical application, in other words, about you are created for purpose. God puts you here on purpose. As I said uh, earlier tonight, if, if you're not dead, God's not done, right? He puts you here on purpose, and that's reaffirmed in this book, I believe, a, a major theme. And then living responsibly and with conviction is a theme. They had to take a stand. Uh, sometimes you got to take a stand, even if there are consequences. Hello? And that's something this culture uh, needs to understand. And I'm afraid it's something that the church needs to understand and will have to uh, make application of in the years ahead, that we'll have to stand for some things that will not uh, uh, engender us to the culture. Uh, it's already happening, you know. So living responsibly and with conviction. There's a line in this uh, book. Well, it's in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the chapter in the whole book to me. And we'll spend a chunk of time there. But when Mordecai is talking to Esther about her opportunity and her role, her purpose, um, and he says this to her, he makes this line, he says, but if you don't do it, God is sunk. Does he say that? Uh-uh. You remember what he says? If you don't do it, God will raise up deliverance from some other process. And you and your family will die. But God will... That wasn't a threat. He wasn't, he, it was, he's saying the consequences of what's going to happen, you'll end up being a, vic, being a victim. But he's saying, if you don't do it, God... So God is never in heaven wringing His hands saying, what am I going to do if you don't do what I created you to do? And you can say, well, God has a backup plan. I, I don't... I wouldn't call it a backup plan. What I would say is God has a, has a, a game plan that He has allowed you to be in on. Henry Blackaby. Are any of you familiar with Henry Blackaby? Uh, if you're not, you ought to read his book on God's will. And one of the things he says is, if you want to be in God's will, find out where God is working and then get in on it. Uh, and that's... Uh, Experiencing God is the name of the book, by the way. You can buy it in, in book form. We first used it years ago. And we've done it. I've done it a couple times here over the years. It's a fabulous uh, uh, book. Uh, 
And uh, he says, one, one of the things we ought to do is just find out where God's working and get in on it. God has a game plan. He doesn't have plan A and plan B. He has a game plan. And the game plan is going to happen. Here's the plan. We call that his sovereign will. Have you ever heard that term, sovereign will? Sovereign will means that God has his, the plans of God will happen. Uh, and the gates of hell will not, what class? They will not prevail against it. They will try. We see that in this, in this story, the uh, evil Haman and the, his conspiracy and his plans. Uh, but the, we, we have this promise that God will build his church, not on Peter, but on Peter's statement, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. And on this, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But implied in that statement is something. What's implied, class? They'll try. That's right. The gates of hell will try. That means the kingdom of darkness will always be trying to take down the kingdom of light. I've told you before, Satan hates God. He hates God. And that's why he hates you. If you belong to God, that's why he hates you. And that's why he wants to take you out. That's why he wants to, to attack and assault you is because he's doing it because, number one, you remind him of God, or you should. Number two, you represent the kingdom of God. We are ambassadors for Christ. Number three... He simply says, I want to spite God. If I can, I can take, I'll take his kids out. I'll, I'll attack his kids. But here's the deal. Even at that, he's got to get permission to attack God's kids. But he hates God. And so that's why he's always, your adversary, the devil, is roaming about like a roaring lion, seeking someone that he may devour. All right? He's just looking for an opportunity to come against the kingdom uh, of God. And he'll do it through you. He'll do it. He'll attack the church. Uh, he'll, he'll use the culture. He'll use whatever he can to try to undermine uh, the, the kingdom of God. So God has his plans. God's going to accomplish his plans. Here's the privilege. I think if we ever got this, it would change church everywhere. The privilege is we get to be in on it. You know, so often... We kind of look at serving God like something, well, I better do this. I, I get, I, I've got to do this. They want me to do this. I, I need to do this. You know, the fact is, we get to do it. We get to serve God. And we've only got a little while to do it. Uh, we, get, we, we get to serve God. We, um, I mentioned this to our staff yesterday. Uh, you've heard this before, haven't you? There are no tears in heaven. Y'all heard that? Then why does it say he will wipe away all tears? That's not before you get there. That statement's made about after you've arrived. I don't know. You're not going to cry all through eternity. 
But I mentioned, <laughs> oh, Lord, that's so bad. <laughs> I can't stand these streets of gold. <laughs> you know, oh, that, was a, that wasn't a great worship experience, Lord. No, you're not, it's not going to be any of that. It's going to be, wow. But I don't know. I don't have the answer to why he has to wipe them away. And I think that happens at, as we stand before him. And, but I, here's my theory, and that's what it is. So you do what you want with it. And I told this to our staff yesterday. The fact that he has to wipe them away means we're crying about something. Some of our staff said, well, maybe we're crying about those lost loved ones. Maybe we're crying about the lost loved ones. And that's possible. But um, it'd be tough if you're crying about them then to continue seeing them and cry for eternity. So I don't think that's the case. I, I don't think that. I think... We're crying about us. And we recognize, God, I could have done so much more. I can't believe I didn't do more for you. And I think he says it's okay. And he wipes away our tears. And, and, and that's all done now. And from that point on, we don't, we don't, we don't operate in the kingdom uh, with regret. We don't operate in the kingdom seeing loved ones that are lost. We don't operate in the kingdom, uh, walking around feeling guilty because we didn't, we didn't do a greater work for him. It's all gone. But he, ha- he wipes, he has to say, it's okay, child. And he wipes those tears away. I, I don't know that that's the case, but I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you when, if we understood that, we would be far more, uh, committed to serving him in the here and now don't you think don't you think and they could be tears of, they might uh, well they may be tears of joy but i don't yeah i i can't imagine he'd wipe my tears of joy away <laughs> uh but it could be i do think this brother james we're gonna get there and uh, you know we will know even as we're known the scripture says and we're, what we're going to see, I has not seen or ear heard what the Lord has prepared. I, I've said this at many memorial services. I, years ago, I thought, God, why don't you give us even more detail about heaven? We, Revelation 22, we get a lot of, uh, uh, well, we get, a, we get an overview of heaven. But we don't come close to getting a real picture of heaven. And I thought, God, why don't you just tell us more? It would motivate us to serve you so much more. And you know what? I, I, I came to this conclusion. I, I know exactly why he doesn't give us any more. Do you? We would say, I want out of this place. If that's what's waiting for me, I want out of here and I want, the, I want to be there. Uh, I was standing with the family of Buddy Pittman this morning and Buddy's still there in the bed. They hadn't come and picked him up yet and I said you know we all know he's okay we hurt for ourselves we don't hurt for him but you couldn't make him come back if you wanted to he wouldn't come back he's well and and he's in the presence of the Lord and and you don't check in get a halo and a harp and a cloud and float for eternity it's it and he knows why God wipes away every tear and you will too I I hope right um, and because in the other place they don't wipe tears away, it's 
weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what Scripture says. No, no what tears wiped away there. But um, at any rate, um, so we get to be in on the purpose of God. There's not a plan A and a plan B. We get to, to be in on the purposes of God. And so this is a theme. Now, uh, living responsibly and living with conviction. Okay, geography and history. While the books of Ezra, now listen to this, because we've, we've done Ezra and Nehemiah. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle the return of a remnant of captives, Jewish captives that had been taken captive in Babylon. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about this return. First under uh, Ezra and Zerubbabel, and later uh, Nehemiah, about 13, 14 years later, Nehemiah brings another remnant out of Babylon. It really wasn't a lot of people. Their task is to go and rebuild the city wall, and then the later crew is to go and rebuild the temple. All right? Um, and keep that in mind uh, for my message Sunday, but that's not the passage I'm preaching. And so the book of Ezra and Nehemiah chronicle the events that occur to the Jews during, uh, in their returning to Jerusalem under Zerubbabel and Ezra. That's the first return from captivity, 70 years in Babylon. And then um, Nehemiah is the second return, as I said, years later. Now, okay, so those books chronicle what's going on in Jerusalem. So what does Esther chronicle? Esther chronicles the events that occur to the Jews who remained in Persia and Babylon. You see the difference? Esther is about those who stayed, because not everybody came back. In fact, most people, in fact, they were even told when they went into captivity, go ahead, build a good life here, because you're going to be here. and you're, Raise your kids here and uh, invest and plant crops and all that kind of stuff. But some people went back uh, under Ezra and Zerubbabel, and then later under Nehemiah. But there were those who stayed, and those who stayed are the ones that this book talks about. Y'all got that? Y'all with me? Okay. The events of the book of Esther cover a period of 10 years, 483 to 473 B.C. Uh, you've heard of perhaps the Feast of Purim. It talks about that. We won't go into great depth on that. The Feast of Purim is an annual feast celebrated by the Jews, and that feast is based on the events of God's deliverance during this uh, time in Israel's history. So anytime you hear about the Feast of uh, Purim, it is a feast that celebrates deliverance. It happens in late February, early March. It's already come and gone, the uh, Feast of Purim. And you know what they do every year at the, fe uh, the Feast of Purim? They read the book of Esther. Because it was the book that established that particular uh, celebration uh, for, the, uh, for the Jewish people. And then, uh, well, I just said that. The book is read. Now, what's the outline? Quickly. The outline of the book, Vashti. Y'all know who Vashti is? That's the first queen we, we learn about in the first chapter. And I'll show you some things about that uh, next week. Vashti, uh, uh, I, this is how I've outlined uh, Vashti's lost connection. She was the queen, and he summoned her for a gathering. She was very beautiful, and he summoned her for a gathering, and she refused to come. He wanted to show her off. I guess you might say she was his trophy wife. And that's what it says in the first chapter there. And he summoned her to come, and she, she refused. When, when the queen refuses the king, they need marriage counseling. 
And so, by the way, it, it didn't work out good for women of that empire after that because they passed a law uh, that was not very kind to women. Uh, because of her, it made the king so mad, and then he had some, some nutcases around him that came in and said, let's do this and this and this, and so they did, and, and, um, and it was the beginning of a difficult time. But she lost her connection, so he removed her and said, I don't ever want to see her again. And uh, so one of these other guys said, well, there are a lot of beautiful ladies in the country, and the king needs a queen, and so why don't we bring them together, and then you uh, select from them. That's how Esther's providential selection happened. Number three, we'll talk about Haman's conspiratorial defection. He became the right-hand man of Ahasuerus, or Xerxes. But he, this was, he was one wicked dude. And uh, he was, uh, uh, we've never had uh, wicked people in politics, have we? And he was one of them. And then uh, that led to Esther's bold direction. She made a decision to do something that was uncharacteristic of anybody, including the king's wife. And she goes in before the king very boldly, and that's chapter 4, we'll look at all that. And then we see in chapters 8 to 10, God's divine protection. How He delivered them, and we'll talk about that. Significant passages in Esther, we won't look at those tonight, but these we'll be looking at through the course of this uh, study. Veshti's embarrassing the king, that's what she did. We'll look at the new queen, we'll look at the plot, we'll talk about uh, time to take a stand, uh, we'll, we'll look at Haman's hate, then the celebration that... Uh, uh, that was the beginning of the end for him. The Revelation, chapter 7, is the Revelation. It's where Esther tells the king what's really going on. And uh, chapter 8 is the declaration. The king comes back and says, I can't undo the decree that I signed, but you can write a new decree, and I'll give you my signet ring, and you just make up a new law that undoes the previous law. Sounds like Washington, doesn't it? And, um, and then inauguration, the inauguration of the Feast of Purim is how we'll do that. What is the key verse? Look with me here. We're almost done. Look with me, if you will, at uh, chapter 4. Again, if there's a key chapter, it's chapter 4. If there's a key verse, it's chapter uh, 14 uh, to me in, uh, in this book. Are y'all there? Y'all know this verse. It's Mordecai, and he's talking to Esther. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise uh, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Isn't that great? What a, what a profound statement. He says, if you keep silent, that's about declaration. If you keep your mouth shut, there is a time to keep your mouth shut. There are a lot of times we all wish we'd kept our mouth shut, right? And there's a lot of times we wish we had spoke up. He's talking about the declaration. You've got to decide are you going to do what, what you're going to declare or not declare. And then there's the deliverance. As I said, God said, God is not handicapped. under. I don't care what the circumstances are, God's not handicapped. By the way, don't you ever look out at things and say, this isn't going right, God, what will we do? Well, God is never handicapped. And, uh, you know, sometimes we pray like this, 
Well, Lord, if you can, we don't, may not say that. We know we can, but we kind of pray it that way. It's kind of a tentative or tepid kind of prayer, right? God's never handicapped. Go, go, come boldly before the throne, the Scripture says. God, uh, I'm asking you, you can do it. God made our do He's got His plans. But you don't have to wonder, can God do it? Deliverance. And then dedication. Come, uh, look, what kingdom are you dedicated to? There are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light and a kingdom of darkness. And you and I, we, all of us have to decide what kingdom we're committed to. And uh, that was the case uh, for them. So that's the key passage. How would I apply the book? Here's what I said. The timing of God was perfect again and again in this book. You're going to see that over and over. God's timing is, is perfect. It was no accident. It wasn't, wow, gosh. That, it, was no, it may feel like it to us, never to God. It is a reminder to us that we must trust God no matter where we are, what our circumstances are, and even when God seems silent. You know, when God seems silent, God is still working. Silence to us doesn't mean God is shut down. He is always at work on our behalf. He is always at work. And that's the application, I think, of this book, that God, God was working through the whole thing, and there's some scary stuff happening. If you're there and you're those people, that's some scary stuff. But God was at work. It's just like the story of Jehoshaphat, isn't it? Oh, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. You remember that story? And uh, Jehoshaphat, the people looked at Jehoshaphat and said, what do we do? And Jehoshaphat said, we fast and we pray and we seek God. And then, uh, and then before the people, he said, oh, Lord, we don't know what to do. So we're putting our eyes on you. That's never a bad prayer. That's never a bad prayer. I told that to a young couple that's in the Valley of Decision. I told that to a young couple today. I said, do what Jehoshaphat did. Say, Lord, they said, Pastor, tell us. Uh, can you tell us? Would you just tell us what decision to make? And I said, I can't. I can't. I said, so they said, well, we're seeking God. We don't have I said, tell him this. Say, Lord, we don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. And I said, you never go wrong sooner maybe or later, but you never go wrong when you say, God, my eyes are on you. Amen?